I'll tell you, to be honest, when I was in Israel, I kind of dreaded coming back to the office. The company's not doing that great. We've struggled a lot. But what do you mean you've struggled? This year, me and my partner have had some kind of like just disagreements. That's the first time in seven years as one of my best friends. The product wasn't developing as fast. The revenue wasn't growing as fast. And I abandoned it. I was like, you guys are good luck. When the right answer is like, take responsibility, lean into it and help out. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Hey, yo, happy Thursday morning. The TMBA podcast. This is the show where we believe building a profitable business is one of the best ways to get more personal freedom for you and your family. Wow. Here we are. How do you like that? Here we are. I like that. On today's show, we're going to be speaking with Noah Kagan, who hardly needs an introduction, but I think otherwise, if we didn't do an introduction, what else would we be doing here? So, well, he'd do it himself. I'll tell you that. <laughs> if he's here right now, he would be happy to. Today, you're going to learn about how Noah defines success, his unique approach to hiring and team building, and he's done plenty of it, his investment strategy, and much more. And when I spoke with Noah, I had just caught up with him after he had been on a sabbatical in Israel. So he talks a little bit about that, where he went to hang out with his family and hunker down to learn Hebrew, just because he thought it would be a cool thing to do. So apropos to the show's theme, Noah's a very dedicated dude, for those of you that don't know it. I know Noah personally because he lives here in Austin, and he spoke at our event in DCBKK, and the guy is just a monster. He was studying Hebrew <laughs> for, I think, about a year before he actually went to Israel. I'd be like, hey, Noah, are we hanging out, man? He's like, bro, I got Hebrew lessons, and he takes it really seriously. So Noah Kagan is the founder of AppSumo.com, which is an extraordinarily successful business online. AppSumo offers daily deals for digitally distributed goods and services. So it's sort of like a Groupon for nerds, but is now also morphed into a bunch of different products. You can check them out at sumo.com. This business, extremely successful story, started with a laptop and some hustle. Hey man, if you have a four-letter domain, you know you're doing pretty good. <laughs> One more interesting fact before the conversation starts. Bossman and Noah have struck up something of a bond. Part of the reason that I did this interview is because you guys know each other too well. <laughs> we deemed that I would be the better one to do this interview, and I'm glad that I did. I honestly was taking notes during many of the things that Noah said, and I'm sure many of the listeners will do the same. But I had to start by asking him about you. Uh-oh. Yeah, that's right, because you guys have you know struck up a friendship since you've moved to Austin, which is also Noah's home base and where he's built the home base of his company. And this friendship began not at a conference or in a bar, but at the home of the founder of meetedgar.com. This is a very small town we live in here in Austin. I met him at Laura Roeder's one-year-old's birthday. And that's obviously where you meet other guys. <laughs> it was a definite bromance. So I said, Ian, I like you. And as we get older in your 30s, it's a little stranger to be like, hey, can we, can we be friends? Can I get your number? Just honestly, groups like yours, where you can meet people that have similar interests, it makes it a lot more easy. 
right? But we met there, and then uh, we started hanging out. We'd have lunch, and then we kept having more lunches, and then we were just like, man, we really like each other. So the things that I think, I don't know if people know about Ian, he's insanely generous. Like, I remember the first few times I started hanging out with him, he's like, hey, you want to borrow my car? It seems like you like it. Take it. <laughs> he's insanely handy. You know that. But, like, the guy builds cars. We've, he helped me build my Miata. He built his whole, a lot of his old house. So that was really impressive to me. The third thing I would say, he is a big-ass deal dog. Yep. You know, he loves the deal. He just is obsessed with deals. Yeah. He's really, really skilled at, like, how do we negotiate? How do you find it? And it honestly gives him a lot of joy. Do you think most people know that stuff? No. I've been on, like, deal hunter expeditions with him where he's told me, like, look, don't get in the way of this. Don't screw this up. (laughs) That is a very Ian thing to say. He's really funny in a way that I don't think comes across on the show. Like, he says some horrible things in person that I think are... (laughs) (laughs) That's funny you say that. So Ian and I have hung out, and I'm always like, this guy's funny. He's so easy to be with. I love him. And I've talked to some people that, like, know both of you guys. They're like... Ian's the dick and Dan's the nice guy. Because when I talk to you, I'm like, oh, Dan's kind of quiet sometimes. But Ian, to me, is the like, loud, like gregarious one. Ian kind of has this thing where he's like, he's not friendly to you, everyone at the beginning. He's going to wait you out to see if you sort of like earn your way into his level of, okay, now once you're in, you're in. I just want to jump in here to say enough about the deal dog boss man for now. <laughs> But this little interchange with Noah actually sparked my interest. Before these recordings begin, often Ian and I will discuss his most recent deals. And recently, I recorded one of those conversations, and it was really cool. So I'm going to play a little bit of that recording at the end of the show. So stay tuned for that. How's Austin rubbed off on you and your company? You you set up your whole operation there. What's it mean for your business? I'll tell you it's changed over the years, and I don't think I would have started this company. I don't think I would have had the company in Austin if I could do it again. There's been a lot of great parts of Austin professionally. Originally, cost of hiring people is a lot lower. The you know office space is a lot lower. Distractions are a lot lower. And I think the overall lifestyle balance was a lot better. It depends on what you're trying to accomplish. Like when I was in Israel trying to work on like my podcast and help run Sumo stuff... It's really hard when you're traveling and moving all the time. It's hard if you don't have a foundation. I'm not speaking for everybody else. For me, I want like, I need to be somewhere a few months, maybe even longer. So part one, it really just depends on what you want, right? If you want to travel a bunch and have like a pretty cool business, like that's totally great. If you're trying to build this like next big thing, I think you have to be like where it is. And so the easiest analogy I use is like, it's the major leagues versus the minor leagues. Or if you're an NBA, do you want to play in the Israeli NBA team? Or do you want to play in the American NBA like, of course you want to play in the American NBA if you want to be in the best. And so technically, as building software companies, digital companies, like to be around San Francisco or New York, you're playing in the major league. So you're, the talent is higher, the, the stakes are higher. And I think I would have had more maybe the headquarters out there and then more of a satellite office in Austin. Instead, now we have the headquarters here and the satellite office in San Francisco. It sounds like you're saying you guys might have a little bit more success if you were based in San Francisco. Depends on what you want. I've loved my lifestyle. I think I'm starting to be at a point where I want to be professionally a little bit more challenged, meaning that I like being around people making things, either in an online group or in a like local, like, hey, I'm building the next big thing here. And that stuff excites me. And so in San Francisco, it's everyone trying to do that. Being around that, I would say at least when I did it in my 20s was amazing. And so now I think for myself, it's more of like, how do I have that on a more regular basis? Either A, actively reaching out to people from Austin saying, hey, let's talk. 
or B, I go out there generally, I'm trying to go every three to four months. So we are in Austin and it has worked. Like we, you know, maybe we're not as big as we could be, but I feel like our lifestyle balance is there. I'd say the, the big thing for me is more, it's also the talent pool. A lot is in SF. The thing as a company I'm trying to get us to change, we're not really fully into it yet, is that we did remote in the beginning, then we got the office. I want us to go back to like a hybrid remote company. Meaning I think being together in a physical, same physical space, your productivity significantly increases without a doubt. How do you know that? So Chris, he was a writer in China and I was working with him. And I'm like, dude, you're awesome. And why don't you come to Austin and help me run content for sumo.com? And so I flew him out. He's sleeping in our office. And as we're discussing things that are working and not working and ideas he has, it happens in like quick time. But have you ever started like, you know, using Slack or using email and there's just, it's not clear and you have to go back and all this forth and you have to get on video chat, but then you have to wait for video chat. There's something there. I'm like, Hey, can we just take a room and talk about this real fast and get it over with? And that the speed of it and the effectiveness of it, I find is so much higher to have higher productivity. I think the balance is come in once a week, once a month and knock it out. And then people can go back because I've just realized like the best people in the world are not in Austin, nor do they want to be in Austin. And if we want to be a successful company, the only thing that matters is people. To me, I'm like, if you have better people, you have a better chance of winning for a long period of time. So I'm trying to find, all right, well, where are the best people in the world? Bring them here for a little bit and then let them work wherever the hell they want to. This week's podcast is sponsored by ConvertKit. And not only are they supporting the show, but they're offering every listener out there, and that's you, free access to their software for 30 days. So you can try out ConvertKit completely risk-free. To take advantage of that, just head over to convertkit.com slash TMBA. Now, ConvertKit is sophisticated marketing software for your most important asset in your business, your mailing list. Now, many of us have thought in the past about using sophisticated email marketing and automation tools, but the problem is they're expensive, they're time-consuming, and they're difficult to learn. You practically need a full-time person or a consultant to run them. What sets ConvertKit apart is their new visual automation builder, making their tool super easy to use and quick to set up. And we're talking like setting up a campaign in three minutes. ConvertKit is tailor-made for professional bloggers and content producers who don't have the time to manage their marketing sequences full-time. You can test your campaigns in a fraction of the time it would take you with competing software. Sign up for ConvertKit today for free, and you'll be sending targeted content to your customers and prospects when they're ready to act, so you can stay focused on what matters most, growing your business. Take advantage of this offer. Risk-free. Thank you, ConvertKit. It's ConvertKit.com slash TMBA to get that risk-free offer. Again, that's ConvertKit.com slash TMBA. How do you know when you have enough money to hire somebody? My personal preference, and this sounds bad, but sometimes just look at people as a stock, like as you're buying like Bitcoin or stock or anything like that, or as an investment, like a house. And it's not that I don't care about the people I work with. I don't treat them transactionally, but I think you have to look at it when you're running a business as a transaction from a investment. So when I started AppSumo, I said, all right, well, I'm doing everything, which AppSumo is our group on for geeks business. So I'm doing sales, I'm doing development, I'm doing the marketing, doing support, I was traveling Europe at that time when I started it. And I said, well, if I don't go out and hit up people to get deals, then the business doesn't grow. So it was the biggest bottleneck in the business. And then I said, well, how much does the deals make me? And I'm like, well, the deals can make like, you know, 2000 to 5000 a month in profit. Well, if I can pay someone 1000 and they, they're getting deals that generate 3000 that's a good investment. 
And so the basic thing that I still do, honestly, and like generally around every quarter is I look at, all right, what are the salaries of everybody? And then how much do I think they're either making directly from a sales perspective or just from a, like from a developer, they're creating things that generate revenue or generate more customers. So it's a pretty easy transactional kind of like analysis. I think the other way I like to hire is I don't like to hire super ahead. Some people are, some people like, oh, I think we're going to need this. So let's go hire them. What I like to do is like, holy shit, this is really holding us back. Let's go find someone to do it after I've already understood it. And I know there's two things I want to share there. I think people are like, let me hire a marketer and they'll just figure it out. But I think that puts too much pressure on someone that you're basically betting your company on someone. And so what I like to do is like, let me understand how this is working or get it going and then bring on someone who's an expert. The second thing that I've started really changing my mindset on is for positions you want to hire. Let's say I want to hire right now. I'm trying to hire an affiliate manager to help run Sumo's uh, affiliate program. I should have already had the person as a relationship started six months ago. What do you mean by that? Most people, you have to find them at the right time. So the people who are looking for jobs, those are the ones who are ready right now. But that doesn't mean that they're actually the best people. The best people, they're going to need time to actually quit their job and commit to you because it's a huge thing. I'm recognizing if I want to hire a Philip manager, think about six months ahead, not hiring the people, but just hit them up. Because on one hand, let's do what a lot of people are doing. Hey, what's up, man? Uh, yeah, do you want a job? I know you're great at it. Come work with us. They're like, dude, I just met you. I'm not having sex. <laughs> Find the people you want six months. Start just build a relationship. Because when you get on the phone, you're just like, hey, I just want to help you or get to know you. And then when, as you start working together, possibly, or just become friends, when you need them, you have that ready. So it's kind of like having your bench ready on a sports team. One of the things I've noticed is your relationship with Amen. It seems to me from the outside that that you guys have a relationship that is one of the most coveted in all of business, which is he's at the top of a part of your company, an important part of your company. Would you call him like sort of a general manager or CEO of that division? Or Yeah, president. There isn't an entrepreneur listening to this podcast that hasn't thought about that in their own company, but I think it's sort of elusive. How did you manage to pull that off? So to give a little context to that, I started AppSumo in 2010. It grew really quickly, millions of dollars bootstrapped after I think about a year or 18 months. I ran it for three years and then Anton ran it for a year. Who's Anton? Anton was our junior sales guy. And he just kept, he actually said this to me yesterday. I thought it was very fascinating. He said, you know, the easiest way for me to make more money in the company is to be more valuable. And I was like, damn, that's good. And he ended up running the company and got paid a lot of money. Eventually, AppSumo plateaued. And so we said, well, how are we going to grow? We said, well, why don't we sell marketing software? That's what we're good at making. So that's what's become sumo.com. And so we looked for someone to just honestly keep AppSumo afloat. We needed the money to build sumo.com. And Amen came through referrals. What's interesting is your, your new people are your best people because it's like they have the freshest eyes. Everything they're seeing is for the first time. So they can actually challenge it and be like, why do you guys even do that? On the flip side, I was like, Eamon, this is everything to us. Like, we've worked a lot and we need the money right now. So for six months, it's also training too. I think sometimes as you run a business, if people aren't doing amazing day one, you're like, oh, they're a dumbass. But really, you don't realize like all the knowledge and experience you have. So it took him six months to finally get ramped up. But after that, you know, next six months, he kept it afloat. It was great. And then he's like, hey, I need to start improving some of this stuff. And he just started saying, all right, well, I'm going to operationalize this. I'm going to hire this person to do this part of it. And after I think two years, he tripled the business, right? And then now he's you know hiring a lot of people, a good amount of people, not a lot, but a good amount. He they have this new product they're working on called AppSumo Black, which is Netflix for software. He created SumoCon. Think about it on the flip side. So Eamon was working at Microsoft. He was a product manager. He was doing a great job, and he's an amazing person. He's one of my favorite people. And 
for him, he's always wanted to run his own business. And I think what, what's missing a lot of times when people want to have their own company, it's just that they want a lifestyle they want. It's not that they just want to run a company. Running a company most of the time sucks. Like we have I literally two weeks ago was a lawsuit. I've got to deal with like end of year budgeting. Like that's a lot of my time, which is not that exciting. It's more exciting to like do the marketing or do sales or do product development. And so with Eamon, he always wanted to have his own company. And so for him, it was a great deal. It's like, holy shit, I get this like, you know, seven figure company. I'm in charge of it. I get to make all the decisions and I get paid really well. And I, he has that total autonomy. So he basically gets the business without the risk. It was funny. I was listening to him yesterday. I was sitting downstairs and he's on this phone call and I, I never thought of it before. And he's on the phone call talking to someone. And I said, he's talking to someone like this is his company because frankly, it is. He gets compensated like it is and he runs it like it is. And I'm more of your assistant. So we meet monthly like a board and I just like give him you know, feedback. You know, it's a pretty interesting team. Like I'll question him on things and I think that gives him a great chance to grow and run his own business. How do you think about compensating people in that way? One is like, look, it's the apprenticeship approach. Come here. I'm going to teach you. You're not going to get paid shit, but you're going to be able to leave this after two years and go do whatever you want. So that's like the one approach. The other approach as well is that there's, everyone wants to be a boss. You frankly got to pay him like a boss. I'm talking to some people that are getting paid literally and bear a million dollars a year salary. If those are the people, frankly, that are going to change your business. And Eamon is a game changer. So... With the salary, I'm like, well, what was he making at Microsoft? All right, let's try to make a lot more than that. And my philosophy with salaries has always been proactively raise their salary. Don't have them be ones thinking, I wish I could get paid more. I don't know why I'm paid more. When I was at Mint.com, when I was 25, I remember they paid me 100000 Now that's like, I guess, normal for people. But I remember thinking, God, these guys are so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> but it also made me work harder because I'm like, dude, they're paying me a lot of money. They're expecting me to do great stuff. I'm going to go do great stuff. And they set that bar high. What do you think about profit sharing and or equity strategies? Do those make any kind of sense or? Pretty much no. Equity is really cool. Let's get stock. It'll You go public and you make, make it rich. That literally happens to one and no one. With equity over the years, what I've noticed is that it's hard for people to actually value it. And most companies don't actually liquidate it. So to give it to people, it's like, well, because I would do, I try to offer that like, hey, we're paying you 100,000, but you're getting 50,000 in shares. And they're like, can you just give me 50,000 cash? Our mentality though, and we've stayed with this, is that I want everyone to own a part of the company. So if there's ever something that happens, you have some outcome. With profit sharing, I've changed my philosophy a little bit on it. I love everyone having profit sharing. And so we take 25% of our profits and distribute it back to everyone in the company. Here's the problem with it, is that people don't think of it as part of their salary. They discount it. So let me give you an example. If you someone comes to work for you and you say, hey, I'll pay you 100,000 and we have profit sharing, you'll probably make about at least 130 to 150. And at the end of the year, we give them a $25,000 check, just give or take, whatever. I'm just giving it, making the number simple. And this is like a SAT question. How much was their salary that year? $130,000, 125. Yeah, 125, 130. You ask them, hey, how much did you make last year? They're like, oh, 100,000. I'm like, well, fuck you then. Give me my 25K back. <laughs> Here's what I've realized with the profit share. It's better just to give more salary because they know exactly what it is and they don't have, to, it's not, dependent. It's not, I hope I'll get it. It's like, I know this. Second thing is if you're doing profit share and we're still not great at this, it needs to be formulaic and they need to know how what they're doing now affects it. Meaning that if they're like, well, I, I guess there's some formula. We have a formula, which is like how long you've been there, what position you're in and how good of a job you're doing, but it's not clear to them. It's not a priority right now to fix this, but it's not clear. So they don't really think of it. And because they're not thinking about it, it doesn't really matter to them. 
So I've kind of said, just pay them as much as possible, create a great place for them to work and give them good, you know, a good, nice environment around it. I don't know, man. Like the compensation thing is always a, is a tricky question. I, I want people just to feel appreciated. And it doesn't, I think what, what I've done well is I don't think compensation is the only way for people to feel appreciated. It's like, oh, I know this person likes this. So our office manager keeps a list of everything people like. Omen, this guy that works on AppSumo, he works with Eamon. He loves cooking. So we got him cooking knives. And so I think when you have people on your team, it's not the money at some point. Yes, it's nice. But they just want to feel recognized and appreciated. From the outside, it's pretty easy to have a great perception of your businesses and what's going on. From your perspective, though, like, is there anything that really sucks about your job or sucks about your company right now that you're working on? I think the most successful entrepreneurs or the reason you become an entrepreneur is because you're unsatisfied in general, right? If you were satisfied, you wouldn't want to create something new because it's fine the way it is. Things with our company, I think we had some growing pains. There's growing pains about when we went with sumo.com, we went from 10 to around 40-ish people. So how does the culture change? How does the organization change? I'll tell you, to be honest, when I was in Israel, I spent a lot of time on my podcast and I was just being trying to be more of an advisor to the company. And I kind of dreaded coming back to the office, if I have to be honest. The company's not doing that great. We've struggled a lot. But what do you mean you've struggled? This year, me and my partner have had some kind of like just disagreements that that's the first time in seven years as one of my best friends. You know, some of our goals were definitely, you know, we're, we weren't on track for them. I think it was my fault. Not, I think it was my fault. I kind of said, all right, well, Chad, good luck with it. You run it and I'll advise and I'll help out. And I thought it would be more like Eamon, like Chad would be another Eamon and I would start the next thing. And Chad's your, your best buddy and your business partner. Yeah. And uh, he's been the CTO of Sumo and he helped start all this with me. You know, we had problems with that. The product wasn't developing as fast. The revenue wasn't growing as fast. And it was my fault. I abandoned it. I was like, well, I'm going to go do my podcast. You guys are good luck. When the right answer is like, take responsibility, lean into it and help out. And I didn't really want to come back. I was kind of like, well, life is easier to just stay in Israel and do podcasts and kind of meet some other Jews and I don't know, eat hummus all day or whatever the hell they do. (laughs) And I'll say it's been 180 degrees different being in the office than I thought it would be. And you create the environment that you want and you make the experiences that you want. And I'm very happy to be back. Number one, I'm spending time with the team. Because when I used to be here, even earlier this year, I would just kind of always be at my desk. I'd come in, be at my desk and leave. And as I've sat with the team at lunch, as I've gone into more meetings, as I've been around the company, I just have a higher level of respect for who I get to work with. I really do love these people. Sometimes I think when you're disconnected or you're separated and and you don't like, oh my God, these people all are working on some vision and dream that we have together. Like, how cool is that? I feel like also my skills are getting sharper. I think when you're kind of distant and you're working more isolated or you're working on, you know, for me, the podcast, you know, I don't really feel like my marketing skills really got elevated, but coming back to the product and the business and stepping into it right now is my next stage of growth. One of the things I've noticed about you is that you seem to have an incredible amount of energy, entrepreneurial energy, that is. And you were mentioning that that comes from dissatisfaction. Is that like something in your personality? I think the mentality and the mindset that people need to have is very, very simple. You're either part of the problem or you're part of the solution. So it's like shit is bad or things aren't working. How do I make it better? And how do I make it better? And how do I make it better? And just kind of keeping that mindset, that's how businesses grow. Because almost nothing works. Meaning that you do stuff, it doesn't work. But that means, all right, well, why didn't it work? And how do I fix it? And then keep, you know, you kind of keep iterating and improving. And that's how you grow as a person. That's how you grow as a company. Was your blog and podcast, I mean, it's really, and then YouTube channel, been going crazy for the last couple of months on that stuff. Was that a form of escapism from the problems you face in the business? I would say so. I don't commend it. 
I think that's what it was for when, when it was. And I think there, there is actually a part of my life that I, I like sharing what I'm learning. I like the attention. I was a dork in high school. No one liked me. That's actually not true. <laughs> it was a little escapism, but I do love doing it. And I love, you know, the podcast for me, like you, you get to chat with interesting people, hopefully. And so what, the way I've structured it as I've come back is like, I realize it doesn't have to be so black or white. It doesn't mean like all has to be sumo life every day, all day. And it doesn't have to be all podcasts. Like, you know, I need attention. Let me be a teacher person all day. So right now, the way I structure it is four days a week. It's hard, 100% sumo, nothing else. And one day a week, I get to like, you know, do my own personal things that I'm just curious about. So kind of like 80, 20, four days on, one day off. A lot of times what's fascinating in business is we want the next new thing. We want that like, oh, that guy's business is so much easier than mine. I'm sure people listening see someone else's business like, man, he's killing it. He's making all this money or she is. And a lot of times what you have is so much better than you realize. And a lot of times the way to grow your business is just go back to doing what you were doing. I was talking to this guy who runs conferences. And I was like, how did you get people to your conferences? He's like, I literally just one by one reached out on LinkedIn. And I invited them to a Facebook group. And then once they're in the Facebook group or the LinkedIn group, then I just said, hey, we have a conference. You should come. And I was like, well, how's your conference going? He's like, it's going okay. I'm like, well, when's the last time you did that thing that got you started? He's like, not in a long time. A lot of times in our business, if it's not going well, it's just like, well, what used to work? Go back to that. You've helped thousands of people sort of make their first couple bucks online and grow their businesses. Let's talk about the people who don't make it. And they don't show up on the internet, you know, because <laughs> there's thousands of people sort of get started and then they just sort of fade away, disappear. What's sort of the difference between people who've gotten to where you're, you've gotten and, and the rest of them? I don't think I'm better than anyone else. I think people, you know, ultimately what it comes down to is that it's easier to, to listen to a podcast or read a book than do the work. This feels like you're actually progressing because you're learning stuff about things that are working in my business or that we're discussing, but it's not actually doing work. And people think that they want a company, but what they actually want is a lifestyle. And running the company may not actually be the way to get that lifestyle. There is actually other ways like go work for that a company, go work for like your guys' business back previously or work for another company. And as they do it, they're like, shit, this is actually really hard. And it's not this magical fairy tale of making money that you just read in a blog post. What I've noticed in business is that the people who win, it's a very simple thing. They persist. And that's the part that people don't want to hear. I promise anyone who listens, if you work 80 hours a week for one year on your idea, you will get what you want, 100%. But what people do is they work on it. They hit a plateau. It's not really working well. They go and like they're out on weekends or they're out at night. And all that is fine if you don't really want your own business stuff. If you want it, like when I started AppSumo, I was up in Croatia at 4 a.m. in Spliff or Spiff, whatever the hell it's called, like doing customer support tickets, right? And then when I was working at Facebook and Mint and all these companies, I was working every day, all day, seven days a week. And I wanted it. And so for anyone, and you know, I think about the Buffer guys. They were commenting on my blog in 2011. It's like, hey, it's Leo. I've got this thing, Buffer. <laughs> what I respect the hell out of those guys and a lot of these other companies is that if you look at them, if you look at Twitter, if you look at Facebook, if you look at a lot of these guys, they're not overnight successes. Facebook didn't even hit for four years. Twitter didn't hit for three years. Uber, as much as it was big, it didn't hit for two and a half, three years. But what did they all do? They persisted. So I think for people out there, think about what you really want. What's the best way for you to get? Is it to work for someone else or yourself? And whatever it is, just commit to it. Don't go and commit for like the week and it goes well. Because I promise you, I can, I can tell you from my own experiences, like in business, things will not go well. That is a guarantee. Those years before it hits are often painful and humiliating. Yeah, I don't know if it's humiliating. Sometimes you have to ask for a loan. I remember my mom telling me uh, 
oh, you're so location independent, but you can't come home for my birthday or whatever. When I think back to the years before our business hit, if I were to describe like the narrow escapes and, you know, the moments when we just had no idea whether the, like the lights were going to stay on, it's just hard to really frame that stuff up at for because you're not blogging about how successful you are at that time. You're busy just like struggling to stay alive in your, in your business. I think for people out there, it's going to be hard regardless. So at least be hard on something you like. Like with AppSumo, I just did deals because I wanted to get software for cheap. I was like, I'm going to keep doing this regardless if people pay me or not. And eventually it was like, cool, we're actually making money doing it. And it did work. And then same with Sumo. It's like, I need these marketing tools regardless. So I think the, the easier concept for people, if they want to really persist and just find something you'd work on for free. Because I think what the problem I have with a lot of people out there is like, oh, this Amazon's a great opportunity. And then guess what? It's going to be hard. And then when it's hard, it's easy to give up. And so at least find stuff that you're working for free. My podcast for free. And it is free. I don't make any money on it. <laughs> I don't get anybody on it. You know, Sumo.com. I love these marketing tools. And we're building tools that I'm like, oh, I can't wait for that to come out. I can't wait to use it. AppSumo. I'm like excited to see the deals. Like, I'm like, oh, cool. I, I want to use that product. And so, you know, find businesses or things that like that you can work on. You'll work on it for a long period of time. And yes, it will be hard. Like you said, you might need a loan. You might have embarrassing things, but it'll be easier to stick with it through good and bad. And you'll be more likely to succeed. Let's talk about hanging out with successful people. I know you, you have a lot of successful friends. What's something that you feel people should know about these people who have achieved millions of dollars in personal income, accolade success? Is there something that those on their way up should know about it? Here's my thought with success. Everyone needs to really just label themselves and have a very clear expectation what their own success is. That's it. I think that's the part that actually I'm, I'm really big on lately where don't worry about what another person, what you label their success because maybe their life sucks. Or maybe they don't actually have as much money as you think. And maybe that's not even important to them. And the more I've just kind of only defined my own success, the happier I am. So for me, when I started AppSumo, success, and this is people are like, really? I'm like, my success was I, I wanted to make $3,500 a month and have sex on the beaches of Thailand. <laughs> people are like, didn't you want, I'm like, do you want to become? I'm like, not really. I bought a nice car this year and I sold it and lost money. Why'd you sell it? Why would you sell a nice car? I'm not Ian. In terms of Ian loves cars. I just get stressed out. I didn't really use it. And I ended up selling it and bought a Miata just like Ian. And so number one with success is just define it whatever it is for yourself. And that's important. Don't worry about anybody else. And the second part is that I don't, I don't know what's it like to hang out with successful people. You know, it really depends on how you measure success. What I look for, I love to be around people that give me more energy. So who am I around that my energy is higher? Who am I around where I'm learning? And I think what most people do is that they have that, but they also hang out with the people that take away the energy or neutralize it. And I'm pretty aggressive, just like so I'm getting older and time, you're, there's less time around. And I don't want to be around that. So I want to be around someone like Ian who challenges me and has questions and is working on things himself. That's part of it. And I think the other part is that go make time to connect with those people. I actively reach out to people on an ongoing basis. So for example... When I go to New York, I go to New York once a year because guess what? There's great people there and you got to go see them in person. Before I go there, I hit up people and I say, you're a great friend of mine. I like you. Who's one person that you can bring in? We'll have drinks with. You know, you have to go and be and put in the effort, but that's also a great way that you'll expand your network, you expand your life. In terms of your original question, well, you're around successful people. It's kind of like when you're playing in a higher league, like we were talking earlier, like if you're playing in, in the professional league, in the major leagues, you elevate your game. And I think you just have to be careful of that where it's not, well, I have some friends who make a lot more money than me. And for a long time, I was really jealous. And at the end of the day, I was like, okay, what am I going to do with this more money? Is there anything I'm not buying? 
And you just have to be clear that as much as you're around people like that, you have to stay true to like, okay, what do you really want? And not get distracted by the grass is kind of greener mentality. One thing we haven't mentioned yet is Noah has a podcast called Noah Kagan Presents and a blog that I read regularly called OK Dork. And a few months ago, I was stopped in my tracks after he wrote an article about how he walked out of a Tony Robbins seminar. It's a game. It's a gross metaphor, but who gets what I'm talking about here? Say I. Once you have a must, you find a way to get to it. Every one of you in this room is earning what you must earn, not a dime more. Don't get me wrong. You might have big goals, big desires, but it's not a must for you. How many agree with me on this? Say aye. After paying $2,000 for a ticket to unleash the power within, after the three-hour flight to California, after fully committing with a completely open heart, I walked out on Tony Robbins. (laughs) Now, for those of you who don't know, Tony Robbins is kind of a legendary guru who holds these mega thousands of people events in which he urges and inspires people to change their lives. You know, I would say that the first half of this year, I was doing a lot of experimentation and life hacking and productivity growth and, I don't know, maybe escapism. And I thought one of the things would be to go to a Tony Robbins event. I kind of joke lately. It's like when your friend starts doing yoga, I'm like, hey, what's wrong? (laughs) Tony Robbins is on that same vein. I went in there with really open eyes. So I bought a ticket and I was like, I'm going to sit in up front. You know, I want to work on how can I enjoy my work more? How can I get the relationship stuff that I'm looking for? And I was nervous. I won't lie. I was definitely very nervous. I was like, oh God, like what's going to happen? I'm going to meet all these people who are going to be like, yeah, man, how's your vibe? Are you feeling this? You're feeling this energy here? You know, like, oh, I brought my, you know, like probiotic, but then I, I made it home. And, you know, I thought it'd be a good chance to learn. And so I will say for everyone out there, every year I commit to going to two conferences. Because every time I go to conference, I get a shit ton of ideas, a shit ton of energy, and I meet a shit ton of great people like your guys' conference. In Bangkok, I'm like, oh my God, ideas and great people. I come back super stoked. So Tony was one of them at the end of last year. So I get there and it literally starts like a rock concert. It's like the lights go dark. And then like you have these dancers on stage and then the music starts blaring and then you see this six foot six giant come out and you're just like, it's him. And you're just like, yeah right and that part's cool this whole thing is he's trying to you want to change and if you want change you can't probably keep doing the same thing that that's not what change is and so he tries to get you out of your element i wanted that and i want to embrace fully but doing that i felt we spent like 80 percent of the time doing that and i felt like his messages were all over the place and there wasn't a cohesiveness or like congruency with it and a lot of his advice was very shallow because if you think about it i don't know how how you can really affect fourteen thousand different people who have fourteen thousand different problems in you know three days of seminars and one day where he teaches health it's like me like oh i'm gonna do a seminar and then i'm gonna teach you architecture one day i'm gonna teach you how to build businesses and then how to build a house (laughs) i will say you know a lot of people are impacted a lot of people love tony and i've read some of his stuff and and i I really resonated with it the in-person thing there was just a lot of stuff that didn't work for me it's like all these life hack and productivity hacks or business hacks the way i always do it is let me go try it out myself see what i think and then i'll make my own decision There was a lot of dancing, which after seven hours of it, I was like, I don't need to keep dancing. I get it. I got it. I'm a bad dancer, Tony. Thank you. You know, I don't believe that you can fix someone's problem with their dad or whatever it is within literally 10 minutes. And then we had to like massage each other and just a bunch of that shit. And after seven hours, I was like, literally, I was like three more days of this. It sounds like hell. And I do think the, the, the thing that was helpful, I've actually never thought of it this way, is that it did give me space 
or you have to give yourself space to think about things. And I think so many times when we're working, when we open this laptop, your brain goes off from going to that conference or in general, I do like that. Like I said, all right, well, I'm committing time for strategy or I'm committing time for, you know, personal improvement. And then that stuff is where you're going to get a lot of large multipliers, right? Like going and sitting out and talking with people instead of just being at your computer. There's many good things about the event, but the the negatives outweighed it. So I did leave early. You know, some people like tacos. Some people don't. I don't know. What other things have you discarded in your business career? You know, it sounds like maybe you're not so hot on like the productivity stuff right now. And I pretty much gave up all self-experimentation. Like, oh, wake up at 5 a.m. Oh, do this or oh, like get a cold shower I'm just like, dude, I think most people are optimizing pennies. They're like, oh, man, this one penny could become 1.2 pennies. And what you should try to optimize is like the major things. So optimize your sleep, optimize your computer. Wherever you're spending the most time, which is your bed and your computer, or if you're in your car, optimize your car. And stop sweating like, oh, if I can like wake up and do a meditation, it really centers me for the day. Like, it's not that I'm opposed to any of that. I'm just saying for myself, I realize that I'm doing all these tiny tweaks, which ultimately... When I went to Israel and I had no routines, I kind of just stopped doing completely. And I was like, well, life's pretty good. I'm actually really happy. I feel like I'm productive. I'm getting the stuff done I want to do. Not great. Obviously, there's still things to improve. But I think the thing is people are sweating the small ones and not thinking about the bigger ones. From a business perspective, I've tried to get better about just paying for things. I think a lot of times we try to cheap out. I'm like, oh, is there a way I can just like hack together a Google Doc instead of paying for this software? I'm more like, well, let's save us time. Save us time. Let's just pay for it. Oh, this is a good one. I think as I've what I've discarded as I've run more companies is that I think a lot of us are like, do I fix my weaknesses or focus on my strengths? And I think we all try to fix our weaknesses. And I've realized that I know I'm just going to be okay doing what I'm great at. And I used to feel really guilty, which is like, I'm really great at marketing. I really like starting things. And let me just embrace that and go deeper on that. And then find people whose strengths are complementing it, specialize, and then find people who specialize in your complementary skills. So one more thing I wanted to ask you about, Noah. Ian mentioned to me that you had some interesting thoughts about investing, but he didn't tell me what they were. He just said, ask Noah about investing. <laughs> I think in terms of investing, it's I've simplified myself a lot. So I'll tell you some of the high level things I try to think about. Make money doing the thing you specialize in. So I suck at stock picking. Let me give you a few of the stocks I bought. Blockbuster, okay? <laughs> Chipotle, right? Chipotle lost me a lot of money. You ever seen the movie Barbarians at the Gate? And I have not. It's a great movie. It's called. It's a company called KKR. Bought that one. That went down. Like, I suck at buying stock, okay? <laughs> I'm just not good at it. What am I good at? Playing on the internet. Running Sumo.com or helping aiming with AppSumo.com. So go make money in your specialty and focus and spend your time on that. I, my friend, this guy, FinancialSamurai.com, I love. He said it really interestingly. He said, look at where your money comes from as a pie chart and then look at how you're allocating your time against that pie chart. And I was like, that's so amazing because we maybe make our money in one thing, but we spend very little bit of time in that. I was like, well, spend more time in it. So where I'm at today with my investments, I'll just tell you exactly. My asset allocation is 45% in cash. I'm very not risky, which a lot of people think when you run a company, you're like, oh, you must be risky. I'm like, no, I want to know where my money is. Like, I want to know where it sleeps. (laughs) I want to know like who it's talking to at all times. And people are like, but you're going to lose to inflation. I'm like, I just want to know where it is. And I've actually, you know, what's fascinating about this, Dan, most people that I've met that run businesses that make good amounts of money, they are very similar because they don't want to have to think about it. And then someone's like, hey, I'm a financial manager. I can do it for you. I'm like, no, that's the point. I don't even want to think about it. I'm like 45%. I want half in cash. I don't do shit. 25% in real estate. One with real estate, which is fascinating is that I went and tried to buy a bunch of properties a few years ago 
and I did this Excel model because I'm spending so much time on it. And I look at the Excel model and it's like, all right, Noah, if you buy a property at the end of the year, you can make $10,000. And I'm putting in a ton of hours to make this money. Then I said, well, if I do one AppSumo deal, we'll make $50,000. And we could do that this week. I was like, real estate. <laughs> no. So what I did then is that I still think real estate, I love real estate. It's, you know why real estate's cool? Because it's real. Right. <laughs> and so, so what I do with real estate is I have bought a few little places, but there's sites like Pure Street, P-E-R Street.com or Realty Shares, where there's professional investors that show you everything about their buildings and you could just let them buy it and you get a 7% return. Huh. So I do that with my 25%. I don't want to have to be even thinking about the tenant or airbnb it or there's anything with it. I don't want to be distracted. I want to only focus on Sumo. That's it. So 25% is real estate, 25% on long-term. And long-term literally is just a Vanguard index fund. And I just have it on automatic. Every month, it's like $1,000 goes and buys that stuff. And then the last 5%, I actually think this is the most probably interesting is that it's my risky, which means I can totally lose it, which is cool. It kind of gives me like permission to lose it. And I, I do two things with it. I either spend it on learning or I spend it on like risky like investments. I don't like investing in other startups because I can't control them. So I've invested in like Buffer, Huckberry, which is a, it's like AppSumo for like gear and then uh, Teachable, which is an online learning platform. And I don't put a lot. I'm not a very big investor in that. So it's like 10 to 25,000. My landlord for my parking spot, he does like apartment buildings. And I said, I really want to learn how you're valuing and like making decisions on this. So I put a little bit of money into a building he's buying. They basically find buildings, fix everything up, raise rates. And I was just like, I want to know how that goes. The whole point though is like commit some amount of money. It doesn't have to just be an investment. It could also just be a learning or self-improvement. So how could I take that money and like, all right, well, I'll buy a nicer microphone or I'll buy something to experiment with. But commit some amount of money to that so you have the flexibility and you don't feel as guilty to do those kind of things. I don't change the percentages too often because so far it seems to be working for me. It seems to be working for me. Definitely a lot of things are working for Mr. Noah Kagan. One of the things that's sort of striking to me, Ian, is even though Noah has achieved a great deal of financial success, that it seems like his most important investments are still his time and energy. Not only financially, but the ones that bring him the most satisfaction. Yeah. And if you meet Noah too, I think you'll find that he spends a massive amount of time on himself too. And not necessarily in a selfish way, but I guess if you're spending time on yourself, that is kind of the definition, but in personal development way. So Noah is constantly evolving. It's striking to me, so many business owners, particularly when they reach a level of success, they kind of operate according to the script. And it's obvious to me that Noah's quite confident and happy to be his own person. And this boils down to even, you know, I'm on the AppSumo list. When you get their emails, it's like, this is a different kind of cool, fresh company. And that all starts from the top, you know, and he's, he's, he's quite confident to be himself, even when, I don't know, many people might say, hey, you got to be more corporate, you got to be more, you know, you can't say it quite like that or whatever. And Noah just lets it fly. And I, I mean, I really appreciate that. No BS, man. It just lets it fly. And another thing I can say about Noah, Dan, in his quest for personal development, I really value that nothing is off limits. And I think a lot of times when you talk to Noah or a lot of times when you listen to Noah, he'll say things that are, are kind of 
counterculture or it might even be shocking to people. But it's because nothing's off limits, and he's willing to explore a lot of different things. And so I think that that's a really valuable quality that he has. Sometimes uh, it's tough to just be true to what you see and what you believe in in the world. And it's cool when you can do that, particularly in your own business. This episode is going to be posted at tropicalmba.com slash Noah Kagan. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts, and you can also check out links to everything we mentioned in the show. And of course, we're going to be back next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. But if you're interested into an insight into the boss man's deal-making chops, which was alluded to earlier in the episode, hang around after the signature tune for a special bonus track. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Hey, welcome back, super fan. Now, in this show, you've just heard Noah Kagan mention that our own Ian, the boss man, is a bit of a deal hound, something all of us who've known him well are very well aware of. So I thought it would be fun to have Ian talk us through a recent deal that he sought out just to get an insight into his tactics and how he uses them in the real world. We're also going to find out whether or not they worked out for him in this case, which was, of course, having to do with a car. So I started out by asking the boss man, uh, what sort of automobile was he after? 2009 Mercedes E350. He had it listed for 10.9, and it wasn't on Craigslist. It was on AutoTrader. What's the difference? So AutoTrader, if you remember back in our youth, this was like the place where you sold your car if it was decent. So there was two places way back in the day. It was either the classifieds in the newspaper, or if you had something kind of special or kind of nice, it was an auto trader. Recently, Craigslist has just taken over this market. But like the Mercedes, a lot of the old school guys still use auto trader, although it's not very popular anymore. Okay. So I found it on auto trader, played phone tag for a day or two, and then ended up uh, showing up at his house. He's a lawyer here What's in Austin. What's his house like? Very nice. It's kind of in the hills, about an acre and a half. I mean, nice. In the garage, he has this Mercedes that he's selling. He has a new Lexus, and then he has a newer version of the Mercedes, so like a 2011 or 12 E350 that he bought for his wife. They've had this car for a long time, I think since 2010. He explained to me that it is in the trust He's a lawyer. So the car is exists in the trust, and he offered it to both his son and his daughter, and neither of them wanted it. So he decided to sell the car. <laughs> so it's listed for ten nine. So what do you, what do you do? What's your move? So the very first thing is to is to build a relationship. So you can do that a lot of different ways, but on the phone, just try to be relatable. It's kind of hard on the phone. It's much easier to do in person. So. After trying to build a relationship on the phone, trying to figure out who this guy is, what he does, where he lives, you can kind of start to understand who a person is generally from where they uh, live and what they do for work. So after that, at the end of the phone call, I said, well, you know, I'd love to come see it, but I want to make sure that I'm respectful of your time. And what you're offering is more than I'm willing to pay. So if you're negotiable, I'll come and check it out. And he said, yeah, I'm negotiable. 
fast forward the next day and I come and check it out. The car is exactly as advertised. It's a very nice car. One of the things that I asked him to do before I came out to look at the car was I said, where did you get your price from? And he said, oh, you know, I've done a bunch of research. I went on KBB, which is Kelly Blue Book. If you type in the year and model of your car, they'll give you a value. Now, where they get these values from, nobody really knows. For whatever reason, this Mercedes, we call it books out a little bit higher than I think the prices that these cars are actually getting when they're sold. So he said, oh, I've done a lot of research. This is how I came to this number. And I said, well, do me a favor. Go to eBay, type in Mercedes E350, and then look at sold listings. Because when you do that, you can see actually what cars on eBay have sold for. He kind of brushed it off. But that was the last thing I kind of said to him before I showed up at his house. What was the number Uh, that was in your mind when you were rocking up there? I looked at the completed listings. And a pristine Mercedes of this vintage with similar mileage and similar equipment I thought like the top top dollar for that car would be eighty five hundred dollars. Wow! And at eighty five hundred dollars, you're paying retail. That's what I call retail. And generally speaking, ninety percent of the cars that I buy, unless it's something I really want and I really want this Mercedes, I will pay way under retail. And when because you, when you say retail, be, you mean that you're paying the perfect amount that the market is asking for. Yeah, yeah. you're paying a reasonable amount. And you're not generally getting a speaking, deal. right? Exactly. It's not a deal. At 8,500. You know, there's a couple things to being successful when you get there in, in person with the seller. One is building a relationship. That's really important. Getting that person to trust you. And the other thing is making sure that you have cash because a lot of times these are emotional deals. Like people get rid of their cars based on who you are, the buyer, and if you have the means to buy it. So in this case, this guy's a lawyer. He lives in a really nice house. I walk up, he has like cameras all over the place and stuff on the outside of his house. Like he doesn't want a bunch of people coming to his house kicking the tires on this Mercedes. So I figure, you know, there's an opportunity to try and get this deal done today. I can't imagine this is how this guy wants to spend his time is entertaining people coming to look at his ten thousand dollar Mercedes. The other thing about a ten thousand dollar car these days, sadly enough, is most people buying a ten thousand dollar car have to get a loan. And so what that means for the seller is, hey, I really like your car. I don't have the money. Okay, then the buyer has to go down and get pre-qualified. Well, the car's over 10 years old. A lot of banks won't loan on a car that's over 10 years old because it's a liability for them. And so it's my job to share that information with the seller. Because when I approach a seller, I generally tell them I'm, I'm good at this. I'm a professional at this. This is what I do a lot. And I try and coach them and help them through the process. Ultimately, obviously trying to get them to sell me the car, but also to educate them, you know, which I don't mind doing. If they don't end up doing a deal with me, they'll have information at least at the end of it. Really so you felt like it. you were going to be able to get this guy down to retail when yeah. you rolled up to the driveway? Retail, yeah. I mean, that was my expectation. So I brought with me $8,500 cash. And I did that for a couple of reasons. One is because that's the absolute maximum I'm willing to spend on this purchase. And the other reason I did it is to show him that I'm serious and to try and get a deal done. So a lot of times, you know, I'll show up, I'll say like, there's no way I'm doing this deal unless it's 6,500, but I'll still show up with 8,500 in case I need a couple extra hundred dollars. But in this case, like I was like hardline 8,500 because I've seen so many of these cars go in the last month or so that I've been looking on eBay and one or two in the surrounding areas of Texas that 
I just know that another deal will come up that because there's so many of them. So there's no reason to pay over retail for this car. Okay. So we get to talking. I check out the car. The car is exactly what he says it is. It's really nice. But still, I'm not willing to pay over retail. Here's the other thing about this car is he hasn't done it yet, but if he brings this car down to the Mercedes dealership or to CarMax, they're going to give him $6,500 at most. I know that number pretty well just from going down to these places myself to seeing what these people are buying. This guy's in a really hard place because if he brings his car down to the dealership to trade it in or to sell it to them, they're going to give him wholesale, basically, which is what I generally offer people, but I really wanted this car. If he wants to sell it to somebody that comes to his house that sees his ad, there's a high percentage rate that this person isn't going to have cash and they're going to have the finance. And so I'm maybe the white knight that shows up with cash in hand, ready to roll. But I had something against me. Well, one of the things I had against me is that the ad's only been up for a week. A week isn't really enough time, especially this guy doesn't need the money at all. A week really isn't enough time to feel like the car should have sold. You know, yeah. That's one of the things that I had against me. The other thing that I had against me is I walk away with these from these deals all the time. If I don't come away with the car, it's always my fault. And I'm serious about that. Like, There's a situation where I build such a good relationship with this guy, he gives me the car. Like That situation exists. And I can imagine that person telling some kind of story, building some connect- connection with me, and like I'm actually giving them one of my cars. So that, that exists. So it's my fault if I leave the deal and I don't have the car. But sometimes the chance, the probability of that is very low, and it depends on the personality of the seller. So... In this case, really good guy, fairly well-read, but he had a number in his head that he just absolutely wasn't willing to go below, especially in the first week. Basically, the way that the negotiation goes is, for me in this deal, was, hey, man, I really like the car. I think we're going to have a hard time coming to a number that we're both happy with. And he said, yeah, he had the car listed for 10.9. He said, you know, I think the lowest I will go is 9,500. And then I said, well, did you look at the completed listings on eBay? And he said, well, I've done a bunch of research and I I just, I said, what can I show you? So before I went over to his house, I looked at the completed listings and I took screenshots and then I started to show him. And it was his exact same car with the exact same mileage and they were getting sold for 8,200. One was for 8,100. And I said, here, look at this. He looked at it and I just said, this is market rate. This is what these cars are going for. And then at that point, I pulled the $8,500 out of my pocket and I said, here's where I'm at. I'm going to pay you more than what these people are getting for their cars because it seems like you've really taken care of it. I'm here now. This is the car that I want. Here's $8,500. Didn't go for it. How do you object? His objection was, well, the car's only been for sale for a week. And so when he said that, I said, look, and this is where this is where you really have to decide if you're going to pull out the stops or if you're going to be that guy that he can call two weeks from now. Because if I'm paying under retail, because that's when you really get a deal is like two weeks from now, they start to get desperate. They don't want to deal with the process anymore. They're tired of people coming to their house. And then that's where you come in and you say, hey, man, anytime, call me. I'll be your guy. But with this car, there's so many there's so many of these things for sale that I didn't want to burn it down, but I was like ready to get the deal done there, and I was going to say basically anything I could in my playbook to try and get it done. So he objected to the 85. He said, I, I can't do the 85. And I said, you know, I feel like I'm really offering you a fair price here. I'm offering you more than these cars are getting sold for. I realize that in your mind, 
it's worth more. But here's what's going to happen. He's a lawyer. I said, you're a lawyer. And I, I, said, I said, you know, you've been doing it for 50 years. He's an older guy. I said, you're a professional. I said, this is what I do. I'm a professional. I buy cars. And I said, I've realized that's a disadvantage for you, but I've given you all the information to show you what a fair deal is. I said, generally speaking, I would come here and I would offer you $6,500 and that's what the next five guys are going to do. I said, here's what else is going to happen. People are going to show up to your house and they're not going to have the cash to buy this car because very few people have $10,000 in cash to buy a car. And he said, yeah. You know, some guy, he like called me and he like had to do the bank thing. And like, he just like kind of waved his hands. I said, yeah, that's your future. I said, your future is having unwanted guests at your house for the next several weeks because we're arguing over $1,000. Your future is getting dragged down to the bank to see if people are pre-qualified. I said, I am the solution to that and I'm standing right here in your driveway. And if you want to make a deal happen, I'm here today. <laughs> Generally speaking, 95% of the time, like if you can get into people emotionally like that, it's powerful. You know, because you can read into all their objections because I've been there so many times and they haven't been there before. Right. Right. So I'm very transparent about the process and I'm saying, hey, this is what you're going to go through. For whatever reason, this guy, man, he he had the number in his head that he needed. And if you look around this guy's house and the other cars that you have, it's the thousand dollars wasn't it. It was that he came to this value in his head and I didn't do a good enough job showing him that the value of his car wasn't what he thought it was. So he'll learn that over the next couple of weeks, that it's not worth that. But in the moment, that's my job. And so last-ditch effort, I said, okay, we kind of decided to part ways. And I said, you know, give me a call anytime. You know, I'm ready to buy this car. And then uh, he said, okay, I'll let you know. And then as I'm backing out of the driveway, I call him. This is my last-ditch effort, right? But I wait, call there's him. more. That's right. But wait, there's more. He picks up. And I say, hey, man, I haven't left your driveway yet. I'm about to pull down your street. Are you sure you don't want to make this deal happen today? And he said, no, no, I think I'm I think I'm away. I said, if I come back here and I will come back anytime you call, it's not going to be with $8,500. It's going to be with less. So he knows if he calls me to sell this car again, it's going to be less than what I'm offering today. And that's worked several times Wow. for me. And he said, uh, no, I'm going to hold out. Okay. Wow. That's intense. That is intense. <laughs> What's your like emotion like when you're making that call? Are you just like a smooth criminal or Oh you, yeah. You you just like you know exactly what you're doing? Yeah. I mean, I've been in that situation so many times. You know, these sellers are at such a disadvantage, you know, and everybody wants to feel good about the the deal, you know? You know, and I I think I had this guy in a place where he trusted me and we built a relationship and he had the potential to feel really good about a deal, but he was so caught up on that that number and well, what would you have done differently to get this deal done though if you could go back and pull a groundhog's day do you think there's something that could have gotten it done sometimes there's just no coming to the right number especially i mean in my mind this guy was being irrational about the price and so that's you know sometimes there's no overcoming being irrational and i, I don't mean that because i'm right and he's wrong it's because i had a lot of data and i showed him a lot of data on what that car is actually worth and so the problem for this guy is basically he bought this car in 2010 when it was a fairly new car. Now it's 2017. These luxury automobiles, they depreciate like crazy. So it wouldn't surprise me if he you know, knew the car was 
gosh, probably over 50 grand. It wouldn't surprise me if he paid upper 20s for this car. And so in the last 10 years, he's had to live through the massive depreciation that this car has spun off. And he's had to pay the massive repair bills that this car has had. And so for him, it's a lot of money. You know, it wouldn't surprise me if he spent $30,000 in owning this car for the last 10 years. And now he's just going to give it away for 8500 So it's really hard for a lot of people to detach from that, especially if they've owned a car through the massive depreciation. I see that a lot. But the reality is, is that's just what it's worth these days. So if I had to go back, I mean, there honestly isn't a lot I could do because, like I said, he was so invested in thinking that he understands the market. And that kind of guy is hard to deal with. What do you think the chances are this guy gives you a call in the next couple of weeks? I think everything is in place for him to give me a call. And if I really, really, really wanted him to give me a call, I wouldn't have called him from his driveway saying, you know, call me, but only call me if you're expecting less than 8500 because I'm taking off. And the reason I did that is because at $8,500, this car is good. It's fine, you know, but it's not a smoking deal. I honestly, I don't think I could turn around tomorrow and sell it for $8,500. That's my litmus test for is this a good deal or not. So for me, I wasn't in like burn the bridges down mode, but I was in like, I'm going to do everything I can while I'm still on this guy's property to try and get this car for this price. If it's something I really, really want, and it's something that I feel like I'm going to pay less than retail for, I'll, I'll definitely get a call, generally, if they don't sell it. Especially if it's something like a specialty vehicle or something that a lot of people don't know about. I can generally connect with the seller on a level that most people can't. But this guy, there's a chance. This guy, he... You know, the kind of guy that sticks to his guns over a thousand dollars is the kind of guy that definitely has an ego. Right. So is he gonna allow himself to call me? Maybe. Probably not. 